You want to know how he's choosing them, don't you? I thought you might have some ideas. Why should I tell you? You get to see the file in this case. And there's another reason. Pray tell. I thought you might be curious to see if you're smarter than the person I'm looking for. Then by implication, you think you're smarter than me since you caught me. No. I know that I'm not smarter than you. Then how did you catch me, Will? You had disadvantages. What disadvantages? You're insane. Welcome to Friends at Dusk, a Christopher Nolan filmography podcast. I'm your co-host, Marshall Doig. And I'm your other co-host, Jake Harris. And tonight we are discussing all the things that influenced insomnia. But first, do we have any announcements or any other Christopher Nolan related things that we found this week? Not really. I have just one thing that (laughs) maybe is a little bit of a stretch, but... The last couple of episodes of one of my personal favorite podcasts, besides this one, of course, is uh, 20,000 Hertz, just a really amazing podcast about sounds and how they play into our lives in many different ways. The science of it, sounds that people like, sounds that people don't like. It's just one of the best things that I've listened to on the regular. And their latest pair of episodes are called synth war and it's just about the history of analog synthesizers there's funnily enough a west coast and an east coast rivalry for the synths uh <laughs> between um let's see bob moog that created the moog synthesizer and don bukla so um, there's east coast west coast beef with synthesizers. oh yeah oh yeah so i've listened <laughs> to part one a couple weeks ago and they dropped part two today on the day we're recording so uh, i'm excited to find out about part two but anyway how does this tie into christopher nolan you may ask but the synth scores that he has quite often and the synth scores he listened to all the time growing up while he was at boarding school hugely influential so we have the synthesizers and the synthesizer revolution to thank for that so get to twenty thousand hertz and take a listen to learn about synths. Nice. And uh, so we'll go into the next segment because I don't have anything that I saw out on social media uh, that was Nolan related this week. So what are we reading, watching, experiencing, consuming in pop culture outside of this podcast? And I know you have a lot of stuff going on this week, so I'll let you go first. Many things. I found a rich vein of form for reading and watching stuff, but I'll just list off the bullet points. Uh, I've been catching up on Andor, which is fantastic. I finished the first season of Only Murders in the Building, which was great. Then I started a trial for the Criterion channel to watch the 1997 version of Insomnia. But along with that, I also watched The Seventh Seal, Ingmar Bergman's classic from the 1950s. I watched it for the first time. That was also great. Lived up to its reputation. I watched my Blu-ray copy that I recently bought of The Dark Knight, so I did my disc quality check for that. No problem with the disc. Film is as incredible as ever. I started reading the copy of Ficciones by Jorge Luis Borges that I read Funes the Memorias out of. I finally started reading the rest of it. So that's ongoing. And at the beginning of the month, I did a little bit of a Disney Pixar binge with the family on a weekend, which... After watching both Manhunter and Insomnia, which we're going to get to in a little bit, 
led to a really, really curious last four on Letterboxd for me. I had Encanto, then Moana, then Insomnia, and then Manhunter. So I don't know if anybody came to my page during that time, but it was very, uh, quite the dichotomy. But the thing I'm really going to plug that came out this past week is another podcast, and it's about my favorite band of all time, Franz Ferdinand. It's their actually their 20th anniversary of being a band, and they released a four-part oh. series just, I think, made by their record label, just about the band, how they came together, and, and their story. So I'm on episode two of four. It's nothing you know, groundbreaking or revolutionary. They're not doing anything that's ever been done in a podcast before. But for me, it's really interesting hearing things and stories I haven't heard before. And just being in the company of, of the band virtually is really nice. So I'm doing a lot of things and watching a lot of things. And there they are. <laughs> that's cool. I remember um, when we met them at that show in Austin, you were like, giddy beyond belief i think that was the most excited i've ever seen you be about anything uh that wasn't family related or you know it was a magical time it was probably only topped that year by the birth of my son so that's high praise yeah definitely you know i just i got to meet alex capranos in the flesh i can't i still have to pinch myself sometimes uh, i made a total fool of myself because yeah my brain just totally shut down and i didn't know what to do but it was pure joy. But what about you? What is something you've been taking a look at lately, Jake? Uh, I am also finishing up or trying to catch up on Andor. I watched the first two episodes of that when it first came out. And then I, I don't know what happened. I got sidetracked and then I did not watch hardly any of it. Life, um, life happened. Yeah, life happened and all that. So I ended up re-watching the first two episodes in addition to the third one on my travels this past weekend um, and finished that up and just absolutely loved it. Actually, also starring Stellan Skarsgård in Andor, and we'll talk more about him tonight for Insomnia. Skarsgård all the time. Yes, I love him. He's so good in that just one episode that I saw him in that he's introduced in in episode three. I haven't watched anything past that, so right. I don't want right. to get spoiled but I've heard like nothing but good things. I love just the, like, it looks beautiful. There's like really great shot compositions on this thing. And like, I love the, like, it's a little touch, but the flashback scenes to Cassian's childhood where it's done so well, where like you don't understand the language that they're speaking, but you clearly understand what's going on in each scene. Love that. Like, I love that they don't subtitle it and that you're just kind of left to wonder what they're saying, but you can interpret everything through their actions. Yeah. Just great, great filming. I saw someone on Twitter describe it as Star Wars for adults. And <laughs> for lack of a better term, I guess that's what it is. I really like that. But really is the most another Star, Star Wars yeah. that's ever been made when you put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Like, people have sex in this thing. That's a whole subplot with him and uh, what's it, Bix and. Yeah, yeah. Tim, old oh Tim. Uh, yeah, oh Tim. <laughs> I could I could go on for a really long time about that whole character arc and all that. But yeah, uh, yeah. not what we're here to talk about. Uh, the other thing is also a Star Wars related thing that I also just binge watched on the plane is Tales of the Jedi, which is a six episode animated series, mini series on Disney Plus. Little anthology uh, done series. by Dave. Yeah, little anthology. By Dave Filoni, the same guy that did Clone Wars, 
uh, the last couple seasons of Clone Wars anyway. And it is three episodes focusing on Ahsoka and then three episodes focusing on Count Dooku. And you get a history of the way that they've interacted with being Jedi and what that means to them and the way that they see how that order should interact with everything in the galaxy. And it's just very like the episodes are short enough to where you get just enough of something to kind of make you want more and it doesn't overstay its welcome. I think the longest episode is maybe 20, 22 minutes. Yeah. But there's a moment in the last episode that I was watching on the plane and I had to like keep myself from like shouting and like hooting and hollering and excitement because it was just so cool with Ahsoka. But really reminded me of just why I really like I like a lot of animated Star Wars stuff and that that really was uh, proof of why. Maybe it's just Dave Filoni, but it is. It's really good if you're looking. Yeah, if you're looking for for a good, uh, not too long of an investment, I think it's like I knocked it out on one plane ride. But if you, it's pretty good animation, good standalone stories, good other standalone Star Wars content, if you want to watch that. Yeah, I watched the first episode, and I haven't watched any yet. But I am so excited for not Count Dooku, but there's also Young Qui Gon in there. And yes. I am a yeah. huge Qui-Gon fan. So I just, I need to just watch it. I need to get that done. I've been watching all those other things, but I can't wait to, to really go into that. But yeah, you're right. Dave Filoni has done some just fantastic work over the past 15 or so years, being one of the giant figureheads of leading the story with all the non-film Star Wars stuff. And it's on, he's really just gotten stronger. As time has gone on, just like a stone rolling downhill, he does really fantastic work and just expands Star Wars so well. And he gets it. I just, yeah, I can't say enough good things about the guy. Because when I started watching Clone Wars, I had some doubts where things were going and some things they did. But he's really won me over and I have a deep appreciation for what he brings to Star Wars and how he can bring out the best in it and expand it and the questions he was able to ask of us and ask of star wars and yeah so i need to finish tales of the jedi and then i'll have even more good things to say i'm sure yeah and you can tell that he because he loves like writing episodes for ahsoka from clone wars and you can clearly tell that that comes through in this as well you can definitely tell it's a dave filoni joint through <laughs> and through well that that's a really nice happy note to wrap this section on because we are now about to go to some really extremely dark places jake this was so it's so dark yeah this is um maybe some of the darkest places we've really entered so far that's saying a little bit at least considering the things we went to was pretty dark but yeah yeah i i'm gonna posit that some of the stuff here is even worse in terms of darkness so let's let's hit it let's go what are we talking about today all right, tonight we are talking about uh, Manhunter from Michael Mann, and then we are talking about Insomnia, which is not Christopher Nolan's version, but the original version from 1997 that he ended up adapting a couple of years later. And so obviously we picked Insomnia because he adapted Insomnia, but Manhunter he mentions as a an influence on Insomnia in the, just the stark brightness of a jail cell scene where you just see nothing but white. And then he also mentioned seeing the trailer 
And the trailer for it stuck out in his mind so much that he couldn't really get it out of his head whenever he was making Insomnia. And then they even put, according to Tom Schoen in the book, the screenwriter for the Nolan version of Insomnia really leaned heavily on some tropes from Thomas Harris, who wrote, uh, I guess to back up, Manhunter is an adaptation of Red Dragon, which is the first Hannibal Lecter novel written by Thomas Harris. Uh, And the screenwriter for Nolan's version of Insomnia leaned heavily on a lot of Thomas Harris stuff. So like there's a lot of autopsy scenes, a lot of examination of the victim's clothes to find clues and looking for other stuff like that. And so we'll get more into that later, but he, he was very much affected by the first screen instance of Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. And then that concept of that's touched on in his adaptation of Insomnia of the killers and the police trying to catch them being the same and being similar, that kind of concept. Yes. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, before we jump into this, our standard spoiler alert, we're going to talk about a lot of things that happen in these movies and beginnings and middles and endings. So if you don't want us to do that, you can pause it, go watch the things and come back and maybe have a stiff drink too, because man, there's some really messed up shit in these movies, starting with Manhunter. I'll take this one for the the intro. Released in 1986, directed by Michael Mann, starring William Peterson, Gil Grissom himself, Kim Greist, and Joan Allen. Those are the top three build in IMDb, even though those two ladies do not have the most screen time. I spent a lot of time wondering if I just missed where Joan Allen comes in and then she finally shows up and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, oh, there she is. Uh, Color, 120 minutes. And the IMDb synopsis is uh, former FBI profiler Will Graham returns to service to pursue a deranged serial killer dubbed the Tooth Fairy by the media. Good old media and their nicknames. So Mainstream media. (laughs) How did you watch this, Jake? Uh, Have you watched Manhunter before? I had not watched it before, and I found it on iTunes and just rented it there. Um, And I actually started that on the plane back as well. Then I stopped once I realized maybe this isn't the best plane viewing when I have two people that I don't know sitting beside me. You may have had a moment just Uh, like Will had in the movie with uh, all his photos laid out on the tray table. Yeah, that scene luckily happened when I was home, but then I was like, oh man, good thing I wasn't watching that in public. (laughs) But yeah, I had... Had not seen that before. I've seen Silence of the Lambs. I didn't watch the Hannibal TV show that was on a while ago, and I haven't seen any other uh, Hannibal Lecter adaptation or anything like that. But now after watching this, I kind of want to go back and read the books just to see what they were like and to to see how they got into this guy's headspace. Because really the, the common theme throughout this and Silence of the Lambs is Lecter's not a main character. He's more just the conduit that the main detective uses to one to catch the whatever killer they're actually pursuing on a surface level but then two it's used as a way to explore their own obsessions and their own desires and a foil for their own personality which i think is pretty interesting yeah so yeah i've never actually watched any sort of hannibal adaptation outside of i think i saw a couple of the first episodes of the nbc series they did uh, a few years ago so i didn't have any of the hopkins performances to color any of my mm-hmm. experience so with all that i thought uh it was really well done especially brian cox 
as Hannibal Lector with the K in there. Yeah, I don't know why they changed it. Yeah, no idea. I mean, they had the rights to the book, but I thought he really threaded the needle between a chilly logical foil for Will Graham and being an utterly deranged, vengeful, psychopathic murderer. I kind of wish we yeah. could have seen more of him, but I think like the source material kind of dictated that his role was diminished and limited. But man, the few scenes he did have were probably the best things in the in the whole movie. And the movie was already really, really good. So I like that. But what did you think of his portrayal? I liked it. I was still, it just felt kind of weird to me because I didn't even know that this movie I didn't know that Silence of the Lambs wasn't the first time Hannibal Lecter was on screen as a character. And so I always just thought Anthony Hopkins was like the guy. And he has kind of become the the definitive portrayal of this character. He's been in, I think, yeah. two or three other movies besides Silence of the Lambs later. Including another uh, Red Dragon also, adaptation. Yeah, I was like looking at the... It's a, a fun rabbit hole to go down because they also... They adapted this movie again with the right title from the book with Ed Norton in the detective role from William Peterson. Same cinematographer. Except Anthony. Yeah, I need to, like, I want to watch that now just to see how he did the thing again. That's interesting. But with Anthony Hopkins as Lecter again, and they just said like, oh, this is 20-something years ago before Silence of the Lambs. Here's the man you know and love as this character before, I guess. But uh, I thought Brian Cox did a really good job. Yeah, I agree. He kind of threaded that needle there perfectly. And I was genuinely scared. I like the fact that it almost feels like it's a sequel to a movie that came earlier because so much of the backstory here with Will Graham, uh, they just hint at all of the toll that it took on his psyche to capture Lecter in the first place. Like it's almost like they're referencing events from a movie that happened just outside of our purview that we didn't see, right. even though that movie never existed. They're just saying like how terrible it was for him, the stress and trauma that he went through to capture Hannibal Lecter. And a slow drip um, that they give this information out throughout the movie is, I think, yeah. paced really well. It's Yeah, it's really good. And it especially highlights his obsession with catching the killer. Uh, and it mirrors it back on him with the you're not so different you and I theme that we'll talk about later I'm sure yeah. because it, it's a recurring theme here and it's a recurring theme in insomnia and a lot of other Nolan things too and I thought William Peterson was <laughs> I don't know if he got the CSI gig because of this movie right <laughs> because I don't know how long did you watch CSI for were you ever like a regular CSI watcher maybe for a year or two and even then it wasn't like an every week appointment viewing but I would check in on it pretty regularly. Honestly, after Grissom left the show, I saw a good chunk of the Fishburne episode when he was the the main guy. Oh, nice. But I saw enough, you know, in syndication that I'm familiar enough with, with old Gil. Yeah, we, uh, we watched it, I think, a fair amount around like 2004, 2005, 2006, that time frame. But there was like a point in, uh, I want to say season... I don't know what season it was, but Gil Grissom ends up going against a, a guy they call the dollhouse killer where he would, every crime scene they show up at, he left a very detailed miniature dollhouse replica of the crime scene. But the, I do remember at the time watching that, uh, just clearly being like, oh, they're trying to like mirror how like insane and how crazy this guy is at catching killers with someone else who is equally as crazy and insane. And they're using that to bounce 
bounce it back off of each other. And I kept thinking of that so much here, especially during the the scenes where I saw in your notes you put the it almost borders on camp. And I don't know why it works for me, but like the scenes where he he's getting in the tooth fairy's like mindset yeah, yeah. while watching the home videos and while examining evidence and everything, but he's he's speaking like, Oh yeah, and then you did this. And then you liked it, didn't you? You sick son of a bitch! Like, yeah, didn't you? Didn't you? With like the score and everything, and it's coming. It works for some reason, and I think it's just because William Peterson just fully commits to the bit. I don't think it works if you had someone who wasn't willing to just yell and go crazy like that. But the, right, the right. part where he's running, he just full on sprints away from Lecter's cell. Yeah. All the way down, all the ramps, all the way down those stairs yeah. where he's just, the camera just stays there for a little bit longer than it needs to. And he's fully sprinting the whole time. Like it's a perfect encapsulation of that man's character. <laughs> but yeah, I, I thought the cast did really solid work, even if it kind of maybe uh, flirts with getting a little bit into camp and some self parody. But I feel like with something like this, it's, it's a pretty standard thriller, but it has enough stylistic elements that are distinctive and it unsettles you so much with its portrayal of of the killers and and everything that it it really keeps you locked in and engaged but i still yeah i think he did a great job and yeah like they those moments made me grin a little bit but also yeah he like he fully committed in it it made it work so yeah I, i'm not saying that with uh rolling my eyes but more like i appreciate this and i appreciate that they did make it work yeah. yeah, like it's definitely a stylistic choice that could have gone wrong in the wrong person's hands. But I think here it definitely works. Yeah, I, and Michael Mann wrote the script for this as well, uh, if I remember correctly. And I thought his mm -hmm. script was really solid. And just overall, his direction, his just, I think he had a really great eye for, for this film. The camera work is great with uh, Dante Spinati in charge of the cinematography, the design really stuck with me as we mentioned a little earlier hannibal's cell pure white shooting through the bars uh how they had to frame that the the leeds house i loved the framing of that i'm glad you brought that yeah. up actually where it's it puts both of their heads in between the bars on each shot reverse shot i love that i thought that was great at seeing how they were just like like imprisoned to themselves basically yeah and how they're they're interacting with everything and from a technical standpoint just the fact that you had to get just right to keep them right there yeah was yeah. really great other elements of design the first crime scene that we visit the Leeds house it's also pure white pretty much everywhere inside there which uh mm -hmm. creates i think i'll mention this later but just the contrast of all the blood that's everywhere just makes it even more startling and then dollar hides house the killer the tooth fairy as it turns out all the things he has in there and the scene of the the film's climax is a really it's a great set piece and then probably one of my favorite shots from the movie when graham goes to that hotel to first start looking at uh, some of the the evidence whatever hotel they shot that in in atlanta i think and then just the angle up from the floor and watching the elevator go oh, in the elevator. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I yeah. love that shot. I loved it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the visuals in this film, I really enjoyed. And I think you commented on some of that too in, in your review, like some of the colors. Yeah. I, lo I loved 
all of that. And the there's a lot of blue, which is a Michael Mann trait. We'll see that again in in Heat whenever we watch that later. Mm-hmm. Uh, spoiler alert for anyone who wants to know what we're going to watch uh, in a few episodes. Yeah. And that like a lot of mirrors too uh, in this one, especially uh, what was it like the dark room scenes, and then the and a lot of the sex scenes had mirrors in them too. I don't know what the the symbolism there uh, is uh, between Will Graham uh, and his wife, and a lot of just like duality themes, like the the both of them being framed in the cell bars back at each other. You see a lot of that in heat too, with like the the blue hues and the the mirrors and a lot of glass and everything. And speaking of Michael Mann, I feel like this is like the I get where Nolan dug this movie a lot, probably just because a lot of the stuff that we watched so far is is about obsession and it's about taking things a little bit too far, right? Which this is definitely about the obsession of trying to find a killer and then that killer's obsession with uh, their own twisted, weird desires and killing people. But then on the other hand of it, you've got Michael Mann who makes like pretty much all of his movies can be boiled down to here is a group of people who are the absolute best at what they do, whether it's a thief with safe cracking or heat with robbers or uh collateral tom cruise is a hitman who is extremely efficient at what he does Uh so a lot of his movies are just like competence porn like you're just like (laughs) watching someone who is like the best at the absolute possibly best that they could ever be in their lifetime at this chosen off the beaten path profession and like you can see that in every like the scene where they're i think it's chris elliott looking at the slides it is chris elliott Oh man, yeah. I, his cameo, yeah. I was watching that scene yeah. and he has a few lines and I'm looking at him and like, is that who I think it is? Yeah. And, yeah. and it was, so I did not expect that. So that was just a tiny little pleasant surprise that I really, after I think the last thing I watched him was when I watched Shit's Creek. So see, <laughs> we're here as a, a serious FBI oh, person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like that scene where he's explaining exactly the process of what he's doing and why something is wrong when everyone else thought that it was right or the scene where he um oh when they're they're on the plane having to check the driver's licenses and the database in real time and then get a fax to the plane and they're yeah. having jack uh the the chief read off names and then will graham is on the phone talking to them asking to read off suspects instead just I don't know. I love stuff like that. Like the levels of process behind stuff. Like I could watch movies, stuff like, uh, I don't know, like spotlight or, uh, the post where it like gets into the nitty gritty. I know we're both journalists and those are two journalism movies, but like stuff that gets yeah, into the, yeah. the absolute nitty gritty of how something is done. I love any movie that is willing to go there and get it right. Yeah. And I looked at a couple of behind the scenes things and Michael Mann really went above and beyond to try and like, look at the latest technology the FBI was using at the time. And apparently he was able to, they let him in to shoot with some of the stuff. So, cause it's cool. This is the mid eighties. So some of the stuff that they were using, yeah, with all the really highly advanced for the time forensic stuff, I was really impressed with. So yeah, it was cool to see that. And from an, I guess an arterial standpoint, seeing that attention to detail, cause actually this was also, I don't know how I've gotten to my point. At this point in my life, without having seen a, a Michael Mann movie all the way through, but this was the first one I've watched all the way through. 
I appreciated that attention to You're detail. So much fun. And yeah, this one definitely was a good start. I appreciated that attention to detail and how he just went about his business. I really like that. So I will say the maybe the only relative criticism of the movie I might have would be it's it's very thoroughly full on 80s. It's uh it is very yeah, of, its, of time. its time. Yeah. Now I don't want to make that as a I think one letterbox review called this out like let's not use this as a pejorative i'm not using it that way it's not necessarily anyone's fault there's a lot of movies that just have elements and conventions that simply don't age well chris nolan mentions it in the variations he says something like all films are of their time and you may look back years from now on your films and you see you did things that were just ended up there being tropes and what everyone else was doing so i'm not holding it against right. it i am saying though in context of the full 80s of this was the not the score, but some of the soundtrack, a lot of the power ballads they used really um, threw some tonal dissonance in there for me personally. Anyway, yeah, not saying it was yeah, wrong sure. or like really awful, but it was enough to kind of just pull me out of things for a little bit. Synth score for this, Innocent, the score was really great. Another synth score again. And also the the placement of Inagata de Vida during the final fight scene was yeah, that pitch was... perfect. Yes, I like that a lot. But overall, I thought, yeah, this film was really, really great and a fun ride and really just worth it, if only for that Chris Elliott cameo. If you have, if you take nothing else away from this movie, <laughs> get you some Chris Elliott. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. And I don't really hear a lot of people mention this when they talk about Michael Mann movies. Like they usually talk about Miami Vice or Heat or uh -huh. Thief or other stuff like that. I feel like this is underrated in his canon but yeah, really think that was good. And the the other thing that I'll say on this before we wrap it up and talk about letterbox reviews, uh, unless you have anything else to say, is I feel like the relationship that Al Pacino has to Robin Williams in the Christopher Nolan Insomnia and the relationship that Stellan Skarsgård has with the killer in with the author in the original version of Insomnia is pretty much exactly it's will graham and hannibal lecter in this movie people that you know like we said before exist to bring out the foils and the the flaws in the main character but also aid them on their way to help solve the real crime or maybe in some cases not solve the real crime and just make them kind of sit with their own yeah hold up a mirror to uh, them a little bit sins yeah. yeah yeah i have a few more quick supplementary notes with this one before we move on but in the Nolan variations, Chris Nolan had a quote when he was talking about Manhunter. He was talking about when he first saw it or when he saw the trailer at least or something and some things that stuck with him. And he said that idea of a mind that can't be contained by the bars of a jail cell. It's very powerful. And the the pinnacle of this idea for when you put it in a Nolan film is the Joker in the Dark Knight, right? When in the middle of that. And since I just recently watched Ooh, that, that's yeah, yeah, really fresh in my mind. He gets himself taken into custody and then sets into motion the events for the entire film, pivoting as it were, and turning us toward this, the second half and doing things to all the characters that prompts him to make all the consequential choices. So I thought that was really cool to hear him say in context of Manhunter. And then another theme in a Nolan context, and I'll talk more about some Nolan connections to Manhunter later on when we're talking about all three films, his adaptation in both Manhunter and the original Insomnia, but guilt. 
as a powerful engine of drama. Nolan talks about and uh, Will mm-hmm. Graham definitely yeah. has some yeah. of this going on when talking about his oh so much his uh, recovery from catching Hannibal and he's talking to his son. There's some of the ugliest thoughts in the world trying to get in the mind of a of one of these killers. And it's not only the fact that he's able to get in the heads of these people, but it's the fact for him. It's from the first scene of the movie where Dennis Farina's character, his former boss, former partner, um, the fact that if he doesn't do something to stop them, like you said, he's so competent. He's such a so good at what he does. Like who is going to stop these these killers? And that's evidenced by the scene when he's about to figure everything out when he shouts at Dennis Farina and about bringing him back, pulling him back into the game to try and catch this guy. He says, you knew I'd be able to imagine you've had these first two families, but you knew I wouldn't be able to resist because you knew I'd be thinking of the third, the fourth, and the fifth families. So it's not just being in the profession, being in the game, but it's the guilt that like, I can do this. Like I alone can stop this person. So if not me, then who? And then only the the only other thing was, yeah, that scene where he has to talk to his son about when he was going through recovery and the psychiatric therapy and talking about his job. It's so well played. Um, It had like, it had the potential to be schmaltzy and overdone, but it was one of the best scenes in the movie for me, both William Peterson and uh, the young man who played his son. They just nailed it because I really felt being a parent myself, the difficulty of how do you explain that to a child, something like that, like the evil of the world, introducing them to this concept and the fact that this does exist in the world. Yeah. And not only just how I felt the scene made me feel, but how they played it and how it was written in how Graham explained it to his son, I thought was just so excellent. So it really gave some emotional heft to things and it really connected with me. So overall, excellent work. So I guess that would be a good contrast point talking about some emotional heft from my perspective as we go into insomnia, which I thought was a bit of the opposite, but we'll get to that. So would you like to Introduce Insomnia from 1997, Jake. Yes. So Insomnia uh, released in 1997, and I'm probably going to butcher these names, but here we go. Directed by Eric Skuldberg, starring Skellen Skarsgård, Sever Anker Osdal, Maria Matheson in color, 96 minutes. Well done. I will say we didn't do any Norway Norwegian name practice or Swedish name practice, so nicely, nicely done. Yes. For all you Swedish listeners out there, I don't think you exist because I've seen our analytics, but <laughs> let me know. IMDb synopsis for this one. In a Norwegian city with a 24-hour daylight cycle, a Swedish murder investigator has been brought in on a special case. Sleep-deprived, he makes a horrible mistake, which is discovered by the killer he has been hunting. Uh, and in addition to that synopsis, we have from Tom Schoen a rundown of the real big theme of the movie, which is it is about a cop who feels guiltier than the killer he is chasing. So yes. Marshall, how did you watch this? And have you ever seen it before, before this viewing? No, it was my first time watching it. And I don't know if I'll ever watch it again because it was, <laughs> it was so bleak. But I watched it on the Criterion yes. channel. God bless that service. I signed up for my, my free two-week trial. Go get it, everyone, if you haven't gotten it yet. Because... There are some really amazing things on Criterion Channel. Anyway, I used the trial to watch Insomnia for the first time. And yeah, what did you do, Jake? Did you watch it the same way? 
Yes, uh, and I second the Criterion Channel recommendation. I've been a subscriber for a couple of years now, and it's always one of those ones where I feel like I'm getting my money's worth out of it, even if I don't use it as much as I use something like uh, HBO or Hulu or something like that, just because of the quality of the stuff on here is, is always really good. And there's a lot of rare stuff that you can't really find elsewhere. Uh, they do a good job of curation. But I had never seen this one before. Now, I have seen the Nolan version of Insomnia. I watched that a couple of years ago. Yes. Um, but I had never seen the original one that he took it from. So I can cross that off of my list here. And I'm kind of in the same boat as you on this one. Yeah. Um, my, I think my... Even though apparently, apparently in the, the book, Nolan said that he watched it twice in one sitting just because he was so taken with the way that it uses light and it uses yeah um an inverse of noir tropes to tell a story like this that's told completely in the daytime but i can't remember how disturbing or how messed up the american version is but this one i just i don't know it feels so claustrophobic it feels so unnerving really uh, and that's just, that's great craft work and i respect it yes. but at the same time i don't think i'm gonna watch it again yeah i um the two adjectives that were just revolving in my head as I processed this movie were brutal and disaffecting. And uh, Nolan's quote about it was talking about slow alienation from the protagonist because you're introduced to him. And then throughout the course of the film, I, yeah, slowly I'm just like, this guy, what is he even doing? I have no connection with him. It's, we talk about cold Nolan films, but honestly, he's got absolutely nothing on this one. I'd say that this is probably even the nastiest film we've watched so far. It doesn't pull any punches. I would say yes, even nastier than Memento with Natalie's horrible, horrible monologue to Leonard. And I'd say if anything that Nolan and his team really adapted it well for American audiences because he talked about, and I think I'll bring this quote up later, but just trying to inject some kind of warmth and connection to the protagonist there because I'd say he was successful in his adaptation at getting us to cheer for Al Pacino's character, even though he was a crooked cop doing some some bad things too. Yeah. Kind of Nolan's idea of talking about Al Pacino, that's what started to give you that connection with the audience. And I think the story did it as well. But there's just, there's no one to root for in this. It's cold and alienating. It left me feeling just empty and disconnected by the end. Now, I think that was the intent. Right. I, I, I was trying to do that. Yeah. So it, it yeah. succeeds extremely well. And I think you just said, technically, it is, that was my favorite part of it, the technical, the technical aspects of this movie. But it's definitely not something I'm eager to revisit. So I feel like I understand now how you feel about Memento, but maybe even on a more intense level. Like, I recognize the technical <laughs> achievement of this movie and how it was done. And I appreciate that. And the story is really good. And I appreciate that. But it just, it's so distant. And for me, that it's hard to really take to it. Yeah, and like I would rewatch Memento again just for the the strength of the performances there. And even though the the only reason I would probably rewatch this one would be for Skarsgård's performance. I thought he did a really good job here. Um, yes, of just getting I agree. increasingly haggard and increasingly tired and just increasingly terrible. Uh, I mean, rooting for corrupt cops in media is like an American rite of passage at this point. <laughs> we've got so many anti-heroes. We've got so many shows and movies about wanting to root for the corrupt person just because that's the main character of the show. Even though Breaking Bad 
taught us a long time ago that that's not the point. Yeah. You shouldn't be rooting for this guy. Exactly. But even here, though, I think it's almost like a Jack Nicholson in The Shining deal where you can tell right off the bat something's not quite right with this guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it just gets worse from there as the environment that he's in slowly makes him crazier. And then with this one, with Insomnia, it's just every decision he makes after the the shooting incident i'm just like what are you doing like why are you like this why are you trying to sexually assault a teenage girl why are you trying (laughs) to all this stuff but the brief rundown of the plot is he is stone scars guard and his partner and are in town to investigate the death of a, a young woman then they think they have a trail on the killer Uh, And it's in this really foggy area on a mountainside. And this, I kept thinking of the scene from the American version. When I saw that scene, they did it really, really well, adapted it really well for the remake. But during that foggy shootout, Stellan Skarsgård accidentally shoots and kills his own partner because of a mix up of where people were supposed to run. And then he covers it up because he realizes that people wouldn't realize that it was him that shot the guy. They would just think that it was the killer that got away, except then he runs into a problem when he actually gets a tail on the actual killer. And then the killer says that he knows that he saw Stellan Skarsgård shoot his own partner. And then it becomes a cat and mouse game with the two of them. And then Skarsgård is just absorbed in his own guilt for the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. But the, More guilt. I thought the edit, yeah, I thought the editing in that fog sequence was really great. I forget if you noted that one or not, but yes. it was such a, it was good at making you feel again, claustrophobic and like right off where everyone was supposed to be, but it was also so jarring, but also I knew exactly what was happening at every given moment, even though how it was such a frantic event. Yeah. And then they repeat stuff like that throughout all the action scenes for the rest of the movie. I thought that was just a really, really well done scene. Yeah. The, I'm glad you brought out the editing. Cause I thought, the editing of this, not just during the fog chase, but throughout was really, really excellent. There's uh, some other scenes where he, I think he's chasing, I think Holt is this author's name. who's mm-hmm. the killer of, of the teenager. Holt. Yeah. And, but yeah, it's, um, no one has a, no, Tom Schoen has a line about Nolan's insomnia, but talking about Robin Williams's Walter Finch villain something about him being kept forever on the periphery of our vision during the chase scenes. And clearly they picked that up from this original version of insomnia because the camera yeah. will show uh, Stellan Skarsgård's Jonas Angstrom walking out of frame. So in your mind, you're like tracking him going out of frame and then the camera will turn somewhere else. It'll cut and he won't be where you expect him to be. But it just, it's so jarring and disorienting and it, does it so so well that yeah it passes that information and that feeling along perfectly and then apart from the editing my other favorite part about this was yeah the use of color i think it's honestly it's the brightest movie i think i've ever watched in my life it was just constant whiteness and brightness and and the bright hues eric skoldberg talked about it being a reverse film noir with light, not darkness as its dramatic force. So definitely not like shadows and darkness, but it's got the noir state of mind. And he, man, Eric Goldberg yeah, committed yeah. and it's there like with all the interiors, they're all bright and white. 
all the outdoor scenes are, I mean, of course, everything is in the daytime because it's north of the Arctic Circle. So the sun's always out. But not just the fact that the sun's always out, he made sure he's shot things that were bright or more lightly colored. And it's always there. It never stops the whole time. Like I thought Nolan's version of insomnia was bright. I was wrong. This does it even more. Especially the the way it contrasts with the greens of the grass. Every time that that popped up on screen, I was like, man, it's really, it's bright outside. I wonder if they actually filmed it. Like if they went up one summer and did that, that probably wouldn't surprise me. But yeah, if we didn't explain it already, we're doing a terrible job of explaining plot and stuff early (laughs) this, this episode, but it's called insomnia because they're up there where there's 24 hours of light because it's north of the Arctic Circle in the summertime, but also he can't sleep because of his guilt because of all these things that he's done, but also the sunlight's getting in with the, and he can't stop it with blackout curtains and everything, but. A good clarification, um, yes. <laughs> yes, but uh, no, just speaking from like personal experience, uh, we right. lived in Alaska for two years uh, when I was younger, and I was actually, I was just talking about this with some friends that we were visiting this past weekend. I was like nine years old, no. No, I was eight when we moved up there and my parents just explained it as like, oh, we're going to do a fun little adventure. We're going to go up to Alaska. Like it was the first time I had seen like snow for that long of a period of time. It was the first time I had experienced, you know, winters like that. It's not quite 30 days a night style, but there's maybe one or two hours of sunlight in the dead of winter. And then in the summer, it is definitely like that where there's like maybe... 30 minutes of, well, no, there really wasn't any darkness by the time we were like in the middle of the summer and we weren't even north of the Arctic Circle. We were kind of like right underneath it. But I remember doing a fun run where it was called the Midnight Sun Run and we just like (laughs) walked and pulled my little brother in a wagon, but it was like midnight and it looked like it was, you know, noon outside. Mm. It was insane. Like, you know, the old like be home when the, you know, when the street lights come on and when it gets dark and we would always be like, yeah, it's not dark. You can't yeah. come inside. <laughs> but like we would have to get blackout curtains to just go to sleep because, you know, what else are you going to do? And so right. I can looking back like it was a fun little thing for me as a kid because it was all so new and like everything's new to you when you're a kid. You know, like right. I didn't really know any different. I can't imagine how that must have like messed with my parents sleep schedule. Or like what my mom was going through when she was like, well, it's, you know, 22 hours of darkness and I'm, you know, alone in this house. I got to take these kids to school or like in the summertime when, you know, you're just wanting to go to sleep and it's still bright outside. Right. So I can, yeah, like the surface level of uh, old Stella and Scarter just like not like the scene where he was like staple gunning the blackout curtain of the wall and the, the frame yeah just trying to get some sleep i was like yeah i understand that (laughs) but i thought that combined with we were talking about editing but like the hallucinations that he starts to have of his partner and of the the girl that was killed and everything they're all done and edited so well in a way that you know that they're hallucinations but they're only there for just like a little bit yeah Um, and clearly like in a way to show that he's losing his mind and he's guilty about everything but uh, yeah i thought that was a nice touch as well too yeah, whenever he's in a crowd they edit it too in a way that doing mm, close-ups yeah. on all the all the other people and really enhances that feeling of paranoia nothing groundbreaking but it's done effectively 
which is what some of those conventions are for, yeah. especially with seeing Good his partner's face hands. on other people. Yeah, yeah, that was very discomforting. Yeah. Uh, again, like it ties in with, yeah, the guilt and, and all that. But from from a comparison to Nolan's version, and again, during the, the wrap up when we're talking about all the movies, we'll maybe go into this a little bit more. But honestly, I was kind of surprised how closely just the big beats of the plot for this pretty much matched exactly what they are in Nolan's adaptation. And I think that the Nolan adaptation really kind of added the layers to it that really enhanced it for me. Because from what I remember from that, I think I, I really appreciate that one more. And, you know, I'll confirm or, or not this notion once we watch Nolan's version. But this one, something was kind of missing for me. But maybe that's because I know Nolan's adaptation better. And there's mm-hmm. like the added layer of, Dormer being investigated by internal affairs and Hap's talking to them. So he has that potential motivation for killing his partner, which really kind of ups the ante. Robin Williams is, I mean, you have Robin Williams as the villain versus the guy playing Holt here. I mean, there's no, there's no comparison. Like he's more charismatic and maybe just, you know, Robin Williams, but and maybe just the whole cast, maybe being a little bit more accessible and less cold and off-putting, but kind of like how Tom Sean described the Memento Mori short story. Maybe this was felt more like a character sketch, but I, yeah, I don't know if that's because it is on its own merits or because I knew what the adaptations like, but yeah, like just the fact that it didn't really change much in terms of the overall big things that happened, which is, I guess maybe I expected it to be a little bit more different in some ways. Not that it's a bad or a good thing, but yeah, I guess I was, I was expecting it to be different and it wasn't yeah, it's very much a, a vibes movie is what I felt like this one was. Whereas Nolan's is a, I think your your point about the sticking really close to the source material, I think is because it, it is an adaptation and he did put his own spin on it. But I think at the end of the day, like they just wanted to stay faithful to, to what they had at the beginning with this movie. But this movie is, I feel like much more, like I can already tell when I look back on this movie and think about it, it's going to be the editing and the way I felt watching it much more so than the plot of it. Right. Um, whereas I think maybe insomnia, the 2002 version with Nolan, I think you're much more apt to kind of remember the cat and mouse and plotting structure of it all. And some of the performances, whereas here, like the Stellan Skarsgård performance sticks out, but, Mostly, I'm probably just going to remember like the claustrophobia and the the shaky editing and the bright lights and everything and just the jarring way that it hit my senses. Yeah. Um, instead of the the plot and everything. Yeah. So I don't know if I have too much more here beyond stray notes like um, a note I wrote while watching that was not the dog uh, in all caps. Man. At what point in the movie did you turn on Angstrom in terms of like being totally done with him? I don't know if it was quite the dog for me, but definitely in the car with with Freya when he was driving her and started feeling her up. I was like, nope, dude, is get the, out of here. Is the dog before or after it's before. Freya? It's before. See, I, I don't know what it was Freya for me, but like the beforehand, I was like, why is he? Part of me was also I was a little confused even though i just said the thing about we know that the hallucinations are 
Clueless Nation's part of me, I was like, is he thinking this or is he actually doing it or what? what is going on? And then when I actually did it, I was like, oh God, uh, okay. Uh, I don't, I don't know about that. But then when he was in the car there, I was like, what is, no, 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 no. Right. That's how I felt too. Oh. I just, I just wanted to leave the room. I was like, I can't, this is extremely uncomfortable and extremely off-putting and like, yeah, why are you doing that? man? And then he does some more sexual misconduct later with the, the, uh, yeah. the, the hotel clerk. Oh man, this guy. Just well, and the whole reason, totally the how, how much does it get into, into his reason why he's on this job in the first place is because he's disgraced because he was fired from his last post for just for like having sex with someone else on the investigation. Essentially. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Do you have anything else here, Jake? I think that about covers it for me on this one. I am excited to see if my second viewing of the Nolan version of Insomnia lives up to how I remember the first viewing. Uh, and I'm excited to compare it to this one. Yeah. Yeah. I will say I've seen Insomnia, the 2002 version, two or three times at least. And I think it, it got better the second time, just with okay. typically any movie or a movie with a slightly more complicated than a perfectly straightforward plot that, you know, like once you've seen it, you know what happens. And so you can start paying attention more to some of the periphery and and other things about it. So I think it will. It's a it's it's a pretty solid film in my opinion. But we'll get to that next time. But as far as some similarities and things between both the movies we watched here and all three, I think kind of for me it was a little bit of a, a movie level version of the Eisenstein theory of you know A plus B equals that C. And in oh, the way that I watched Insomnia first, and then that made me like on heightened awareness for all the stark white settings we see in Manhunter. So like Lecter's cell, the white prison that he's in, uh, mm, that mm-hmm. Will runs out of the Leeds house that I mentioned earlier, the first crime scene, which then that in turn highlights, yeah, like there's blood all over the place. Like my God, it's so scary. And just seeing that and a few other connections, but kind of the idea of the external expert, the detective brought in, I called it while I was watching Manhunter, I wrote down the great man theory of all-star detectives. <laughs> Both of these movies do a really good job of having some shots of detectives staring into nothingness. So much, so much of this. Especially that final shot of insomnia of him just staring dead eyed. Oh on the yeah, yeah. They turned him into a white walker, really. I mean, they, the way they <laughs> fade out is what I thought. And I mean, gosh, that's actually maybe a good parallel because he just turns into a shell really yeah um let's see the beginnings of both movies really were very chilling i said like rough beginnings in terms of they show the crime happening or about to happen oh that manhunter intro yeah yeah like yeah the, just the pov of coming up the stairs um <sighs> you get some strong following vibes from both of these but like especially in manhunter there's that intensification <laughs> of that the violation of the, the social contract and someone coming in and looking at your things and being there so in terms of both of those showing the initial crime or one of the initial crimes, it's interesting to think about that in contrast to Nolan's beginning of insomnia of his version, because it starts with the blood drips and I won't say anything here about it, but it's not what you think it is when it shows those blood drips, I think in the very first shot while the credits are rolling. So that was, um, I think a nice little small subversion that he, he does with his version. But otherwise, the only other big thing I would say about some things I, I drew between 
these two films and sometimes Nolan's adaptation is talking about how in some ways how similar detectives and the cops are to the murderers they chase or how the murderers can hold up that mirror to them and show them the power of obsession that they have in pursuing these killers and we see yeah we see it in all three of these you know it's honestly kind of weird in Manhunter to see Will Graham how he gets in the mind frame of these serial killers and and then Hannibal of course outright says it too and then you see it with all the bad things that Angstrom does in the 1997 insomnia not to mention like just the fact of his cover-up of his shooting fit and then in 2002 insomnia walter finch outright says it to will dormer even though in the book in the nolan variations nolan kind of mentions how he pushed back against that a little bit based on his interviewing of real life detectives you know the line from insomnia about the black toilet to a plumber and nolan says about the original insomnia he's um saying the slow alienation from the protagonist my film's the opposite. You go with him on the journey and in a way you get closer to him at the end than you are at the beginning. I love the idea of going, okay, take this exact plot, but you just change a few things. You change your relationship with them. And again, I'll mention this more next time, but I think those things that he did change worked really well for me and have me able to take to the film and warm up to it more than its source. So, yeah, were, are there any other things you noticed cross-pollinating among all these things, Jake? Um, the only other big thing that I noticed was in the Nolan Variations book, Tom Schoen mentioned a quote that Nolan said about the remake of Insomnia, where his idea was, oh, you could just take this and you could almost make it like heat. Uh, which I don't know if he said that before or after casting Al Pacino, but I just thought that was a funny oh, yeah. moment mm-hmm. um, <laughs> because of uh, Al Pacino's casting. And also Pacino's character in Insomnia is pretty much like a cracked out, way more haggard version of his character in Heat, which is also a movie about a cop obsessed with catching the the thief that has eluded his grasp uh, his whole career. But I just thought that was because that's the heat was the basis for a lot of stuff for Dark Knight. But then clearly that was also on his mind for something like this, where he was trying to put his own spin on something that he liked a lot. And again, we've we talked about the theme of obsession, which is also going to be a recurring Nolan theme uh, for other future movies and for all of these right here as well. One other thing that I did note was in both Manhunter and the 1997 insomnia was the how they use the media to try to communicate or lure their kill the killers out because in insomnia they say that oh we found this bag here and that's how they get the killer to the cabin initially and then in manhunter will graham teams up with this yeah yellow tabloid reporter at some rag to drop a bunch of false conclusions about the tooth fairy in there to try and draw him out and problem is tooth fairy doesn't go after will he goes after the the so-called reporter instead which leads to like another just searing literally and figuratively (laughs) image yeah Um, once the reporter gets uh taken out by dollar hide and i guess the last thing i'll have to say on all that is with that the tooth fairy with Francis Dollarhide kidnapping 
Nick Lyons. He takes him from D.C. And as it turns out later in the film, he takes him all the way to his house. But that's in like the boonies around St. Louis, Missouri. But then it looks like he takes mm-hmm. him back to the parking garage where he kidnapped him, sets him on fire and rolls him down the wheelchair. So it just made me think of the commentary and the Nolan variations about time. It's like, how long did that actually take before, you know, someone noticed this reporter missing? So Nolan talking about films tapping into a dreamlike sense of time. It didn't like bother me. It didn't ruin anything for me, but it did make me think of, oh, hey, like, oh, we went from D.C. to St. Louis and back before anybody noticed this reporter was missing before he shows up on fire. So pretty cool to have some things like that pop up to give us something to talk about. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, oh, do we want to do letterbox reviews? I think we've made it there. I think we've, again, earned our All reward. Right. This might be the thing I look forward yes. to the most. Finding the great letterbox reviews, all of these. The one I picked out one uh, funny one and one more serious one. The funny one is from Manhunter, again from Fran Hopner. Hopner. She said, This is a powerful testament to what a group of Chicagoans and Brian Cox can do together. <laughs> right, right. Mine for Manhunter was kind of a longer one, a little bit more of a so called serious one from uh, Sydney, who is at Camp B Art. And yeah, they have kind of a long review, but I highlighted some of the things that stuck out to me. They said, man, movies don't take place in our universe, but in an alternate one right next door to ours. There's some overlap for the most part. His people don't act quite like anyone would in real life. Which that point really stuck out to me because that's kind of how I think of Nolan films, whether it's if it's not for the people, then it's just something about the reality of the universe that his films take place in, like Inception, for example. It's it's our world, except the one twist is they have this technology that you can share dreams, which is the entire thing that allows the plot to take place. So mm-hmm. I thought that was a really cool point to make. And then the other highlight from this review was I questioned myself about whether I'm using this to excuse obviously bad acting just because I love the movie but the important part is that I feel Will Graham's most emotional moments come off as authentic I just think it's for me that's important to emphasize that because they talk about in this review touches on him explaining what he does and what his job is and the kind of people he chases in that grocery store talking to his kid so mm-hmm. a good review it's a I think it's a five-star review this person really Love the movie and has some other really good points, but those are the ones I wanted to highlight. And the other Manhunter review I chose because I can't help myself was from uh, Mike Ginn, who is um, at Shut Up Mike Ginn, who wrote uh, Hopkins and Mickelson both play Lecter with a poise and polish, but Brian Cox seems like he actually eats people. Mm. He does give off that. He vibe, does. Man. He does. Creepy. So, what did you pick out for Insomnia? For insomnia, I have this one from uh, what is it? Troy with the pumpkin. This is uh, <laughs> or the the at is at simping for marks. <laughs> but the vibe of this review basically it kind of sums up my thoughts, and I found this after I I had finished all of it. But it it said I didn't fully understand much of the character's motivation or plot chalk it up to lack of attention but still I could probably do with a rewatch but I did however really love the vibe of this film everything is so cold and tonally dissociated that it really lives up to the film's title 
everything just feels so painful and drawn out in a good way. Stellan Skarsgård gives a great performance and is as creepy as ever, although I think this is more than I find him super unsettling to watch. So this pretty much, it hits on all of my my thoughts, really. Like, I loved Skarsgård's performance, and I liked the the vibes and the the tone and just the overall feeling of the film, but on a, another level of just... I understand the plot. I understand what happened, but I, I like as for his motivations as to why he is the way he is, I don't think we really get any explanation for it. But right, I did enjoy the the vibes. The vibes are immaculate, <laughs> as the kids say these days. Yeah, I, I actually read that review. I, I recognize that, and that was a good summation of of my feelings and thoughts too. So I'm glad you picked that one out. The one that I chose is from. It's another lengthy one, so we'll pick up the highlights here from user Adele with an axe emoji at a class, so A C L A A S Z, and they wrote equally erotic and repulsive. The Norwegian gem Insomnia stars Stellan Skarsgård as the unhinged, not quite right cop Jonas Engstrom, who really needs a power nap. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he does. That one really, that's what, that's what made me choose this one. Yeah. And they say no one holds him accountable, which was kind of something I noticed. Um, He just skates through this whole thing, except for that, you know, the last scene with the, with the other detective they assigned to investigate the shooting, his shooting of Vic or the Vic shooting rather. And she sort of figures it out in the end. But anyway, still, he's able to just drive away. And then talking about Skarsgård again, he delivers a strong leading performance and never breaks character an eerily convincing portrayal of a man that an audience can pity, loathe, worry for, and be repulsed by all at once. I read a review in which a critic referred to this movie as film blanc, a film noir crime thriller that has been sunbaked and bleached in daylight terror. Insomnia proves that things go bump in the day too. A tense enough atmosphere is built and the gorgeous neutral palette of the movie complements the mood. Uh, so this was a four and a half star review. The, this person loved it more than i did but still the the points stand it is definitely quite wonderful technically and stone scars guard just maybe he did too good a job i don't know you just yeah that dead-eyed portrayal just leaves an empty hole in the middle of you doesn't it yeah i like that film blanc title though i like that yes. that, that makes sense yes absolutely so i think i think that's it we've uh we've covered some things we wanted to cover i think so we did another one. We made it. We did it. We did an episode. <laughs> right before we really immerse ourselves in the holiday season. Great holiday viewing. Make sure, folks, if you're listening to this, bring insomnia to your next Christmas gathering. See how it goes over. It'll. Um, you can use it like Carrie Fisher used the Star Wars holiday special. You can really clear the room. <laughs> Do you want everyone to leave? But in the meantime, before we return with an evaluation and discussion of Christopher Nolan's insomnia. Where can people find us, Jake? Uh, yeah, we're going to be uh, at friends at desk pod on Instagram. And for as long as uh, Twitter exists, we're on that <laughs> website at, at friends at dusk. That's a, a, what a time in history. What a time to be alive. I'm not going to touch that. Anyway. I'm going to keep going. Anyway, <laughs> or you can email us. We have an email address. We just haven't been mentioning it lately. If you have any suggestions for us, uh, email us at friends at duskpod at gmail.com. 
And then you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Jake Harris four and on letterboxd at 808 Jake underscore. And I am on Instagram at marshall.doig, Twitter at marshalldoig, and letterboxd at mdoig. I just had to go with all the different variations. Sometimes it might be taken, you know? That that was the case for Instagram. Someone else had taken what my Twitter handle was. I couldn't believe it. Anyway, please give us a like and subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening, if that's possible. We'd really appreciate it. You can, if you feel so moved, you can support us through our anchor page. You can throw some money our way. We'll probably use it to pay for all the streaming services, buy a Blu-ray, maybe get a cup of coffee. But that would be, that'd be really cool. Otherwise, we're just having a lot of fun doing this. That's mm-hmm. what we're doing. Or in a Christopher Nolan movie, we might get some tea instead of coffee. Who knows? Good point. Good point. That would be the more appropriate thing. As always, you can find our list of resources and what we're doing next in the show notes. As we already said, we'll be doing Christopher Nolan's Insomnia, and we'll also be listening to the score. Important note. But yeah, we'll discuss that when the time comes. All right, and that'll do it for us, and we'll see you next time on Friends at Dusk. Thanks for listening. Bye.